Father, we just, uh, when we look at what you've done for us on the cross and the blood that was shed for us, and Lord, just throughout the Bible, your word speaks of the blood over and over and over again. So help us today, Lord, as we as we look at this great text in the book of Hebrews to understand why, why blood had to be shed, why the blood is so important to our religion, how we can't have a religion without the blood. Lord, that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So, Lord, we ask you to to teach us about uh, this great subject today because we talk about the blood and we sing about the blood, but... But show us theologically how the blood is applied to our life today in this text, Lord. Father, we just thank you for your word again, and we ask you to bless our study today in Hebrews. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Hebrews, and we'll be in chapter number 9, and we'll be picking up down in verse number 11. Christianity, from its inception, from the very beginning, uh, has been called by its critics and by liberal scholars, many have called it a slaughterhouse religion. A slaughterhouse religion. Now, why why do they call it that? Well, because there's so much focus in the Bible on the blood. There's blood in the Old Testament. There's blood way back when Abraham uh, was... Was God made the covenant with Abraham, blood had to be shed for that covenant to be made. Blood was shed when the old covenant was made. Blood, of course, was shed when the new covenant was made. And so, so our religion has a lot to do with blood. I mean, as, as the author of Hebrews is going to tell us today in verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so without the shedding of blood, you have no religion. You have no salvation. And our religion really is, I mean, it's criticized as a slaughterhouse religion, but really it is a slaughterhouse religion because you, you read the Gospels and look at what happened to Jesus Christ, and you can, you can, you can dress over it if you want to, but, but he was slaughtered. I mean, he was slaughtered. He was beaten bloody. He was, he was scourged until he was bloody. That crown of thorns was driven down into his head and that blood came down his face. And they nailed his hands and nailed his feet to a cross. That was a pretty bloody thing. And then they stuck a spear in his side and he bled some more. There was blood and water. And so, so we have a bloody religion. But thank goodness for the slaughter of the Son of God. Because without his shed blood, we would be facing something far worse than what he faced. We would be facing an eternity in hell. And so we thank God for our, for our religion. Well, in our last study, Paul had given us an overview of the wilderness tabernacle and, and the temple. And, and, and really, if you look at the Jewish religion, it was a slaughterhouse religion. It actually was their slaughterhouse. They got most of their meat that they ate from the temple and from the tabernacle. And so it was there for all practical purposes. It was their slaughterhouse. But what took place in the Jewish religion was only a shadow of the real thing, of the substance. The substance being Jesus Christ, the one who cast the shadow. And so all of that blood that you have in the Old Testament was pointing to the blood of Jesus Christ, to Jesus and the heavenly tabernacle. And that's where the author of Hebrews is going to pick up today in verse number 11. So go with me to Hebrews chapter 9 and look down in verse number 11. And hang with me here. This is some deep stuff, but, but this will answer, should answer a lot of questions you have about the blood. Why the blood? And so, so hang with me. It says, but Christ came as a high priest of good things to come. Now, that, some translation says things that have come, good things that have come good things to come and good things that have come. I believe they're both right. I mean, we, we've received a lot of what Christ has to give us now as the church. And so the, the Jews received a lot of what Christ had. So, so he came as the high priest, and, and there's good things still to come. But Christ came, came as high priest of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle than the, than the Old Testament tabernacle. 
not, not a tabernacle made with hands, that is, and not of this creation. So what the author is speaking of here is the heavenly tabernacle. The heavenly tabernacle. Now what's a tabernacle? What's it, what is a tabernacle? It's really the word for tent. It's a dwelling place. And that's, that's all it is. So a heavenly tabernacle is what? You can define it. What is it? It's the dwelling place of God. And the heavenly tabernacle is infinitely more, uh, infinitely more, is infinitely greater and more perfect than the, the wilderness tabernacle and the Jerusalem temple because they were just a shadow of the heavenly tabernacle. And, and we were given some details about it. First of all, uh, we can see that it wasn't made with hands. It was made by God. That tells me that it has existed forever. The heavenly tabernacle has always existed. It's not part of the material creation that we see in the first two chapters of Genesis. He says that is, look at verse 11, not of this creation. And let me tell you what the main part of the heavenly tabernacle is. If the main part of the, if the heavenly tabernacle is the dwelling place of God, what's the main part of the heavenly tabernacle? I'll tell you who it is. It's a he. It's Jesus Christ. He's, he's the heavenly tabernacle. He's the, he's the one who, uh, in whom God dwells. That's what Paul says over in uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. He says, he says in Christ dwells in Christ's tabernacles all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Where's God dwell? He dwells in Jesus Christ. All the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Jesus Christ. So that's some heavenly tabernacle, I can tell you right now. Now that would make sense if he is the heavenly tabernacle, he is the dwelling place of God, then who should be high priest of the heavenly tabernacle? Jesus Christ. So it says here that Jesus Christ came as the high priest of good things to come. When he came to this earth, he came to show us the dwelling place of God. He came to show us the heavenly tabernacle. Now, when we saw that heavenly tabernacle, did we see angels? Did we hear them singing, holy, holy, holy? Did we see the throne of God? No, we didn't. Did we see the Shekinah glory of God? No, because as Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, he emptied himself of most of his glory. He emptied himself of his glory, and, and he came in the likeness of a man. But he was still the tabernacle, the heavenly tabernacle of God. And he gave us the taste of things to come. I mean, you want to you see God? You look at Jesus Christ. You go back to the Old Testament, you want to see God? Where do we see God in the Old Testament? We see God in theophanies, where he appears as the angel of the Lord, who is none other than the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. You want to see God tabernacled on earth? Then read the Gospels. You want to see God in his glory? Then read the book of Revelation. So we're given glimpses of this heavenly tabernacle in the very person of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't see the angels. We don't hear them saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who is and was and is to come. We don't see or hear that. We, we don't see the church of the firstborn. We don't see the crystal sea. We don't see the throne of God. But we see the main thing about the heavenly tabernacle. We see Jesus Christ. Now, I have people come up to me all the time, and, and I can tell by the questions they ask me how they see the heavenly tabernacle. They see the heavenly, heavenly tabernacle as some future place that they're going to live one day. In other words, uh, they think their first chance of seeing the heavenly tabernacle will be either when they're raptured or when they die. I've got news for you. You can see the heavenly tabernacle now because God wants you, listen to what he says here, he wants you to experience the good things that have come and that are to come. How do I do that? Well, Paul told us over in Colossians, back in Colossians again, chapter uh, 1, verse 27, I believe it is, that this is the mystery that has been hidden from the ages. 
What is that mystery? Christ in you, your hope of glory. Now, wait a minute. Who's the heavenly tabernacle? Jesus Christ. So do I have to wait till I get to heaven to see the heavenly tabernacle? No. Christ, the heavenly tabernacle, is in me my hope of glory. As a Christian, you know what has happened? You have, when you received Jesus Christ, you know what you became? You became a heavenly tabernacle yourself because you became the dwelling place of God. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 19, that our bodies are the temple, the tabernacle, the tent of the Holy Spirit. If you're born again, Christ Jesus, who is the heavenly tabernacle, dwells in you. So how do I enter the holiest of holies now? By faith. You know how you enter the holiest of holies now? You don't have to wait till you get to heaven to enter the holiest of holies. You enter that, the holiest of holies now by faith when you look within. Because what has happened, you know what's happened? The holiest of holies has entered us. When you were born again, the holiest of holies entered into your soul. You realize that? How many of you believe that? Man, if you really believe that, you, you, doesn't that change the way you live? Doesn't that change the way you pray? When you realize that you can actually come into the holiest of holies? But there's one catch, and it's a big catch. What had to happen to the Ark of the Covenant in, in, on the Day of the Atonement? It had to be sprinkled with blood. When for Jesus to become the heavenly tabernacle, what had to, the glorified heavenly tabernacle, he had to be drenched in blood. And for you to become the holiest of holies, you have to be sprinkled in the blood of Jesus Christ. It's by the blood, it's been the blood only, that we receive the life of God. It's by the blood only that we can enter into the holiest of holies. You got that? If you're trying to enter into the holiest of holies any other way, you're not going to get in. And as a Christian, I'm going to tell you what, sometimes we lock ourselves out of the holiest of holies and we work all, do all this work out in the holy place, but we never get into the holiest of holies because we're still trying to please God by our works instead of looking to the mercy seat of the throne of God and looking at that blood and realizing that we've in our hearts, in the holiest of holies of our hearts, we've been sprinkled with that blood. And it's by the blood of God that we enter into the presence of God. And it's the only way that we enter into the presence of God. And I'll tell you this right now. You want to have power in your prayer. The first thing you've got to do when you get before the Lord is see the blood. You've got to realize that it is the blood that gets you into the holiest of holies. If you're thinking, well, boy, God's going to listen to me today because I've been pretty good today. So he didn't listen to me last week because I was doing some bad things, but he's listening to me today. You hear, the, you hear this theology, somehow you're out of fellowship with God if you're, if, you're, if you're not doing the right thing, you're not confessing all your sin, you're out of fellowship with God. What, what, then what are, what's getting you into the holiest of holies? You understand the blasphemy of that? Your confession's getting you into the holiest of holies. Your confession doesn't get you in the holiest of holies. I believe in confession, but your confession doesn't get you in the holiest of holies. What gets you in the holiest of holies? One thing. The blood of Jesus Christ, and that's it. And so he's going to talk about the blood now. Look down in verse number 12. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. Theosomatos, the blood of God. With his own blood, he entered the most holy place. Catch this. I want everybody to look at this real carefully. Once and for all. Once and for all. He entered the holiest of holies with what? With his own blood, he entered the holiest of holies. And he attained for us with what? His blood and eternal redemption. What redeems us? Our confession, our good works, our sticking with Christ, our, our enduring. What redeems us? The blood. And how long does it redeem us for? Forever. It's an eternal inheritance. You see that? Well, I'm gonna, I want you to see it even better. Let's talk about it a little bit. Here's what he's saying. Jesus didn't enter the heavenly tabernacle with 
the blood of goats and calves. He entered it with his, the blood of God. You can't add to the blood of God. And he did it once and for all. That means he did it once and he will never do it again. It's a once and for all transaction. He doesn't give you his blood so that you can enter the holiest of holies and then take it away because you weren't a good little boy and girl today. If it was based upon us being good little boys and girls, we would never get into the holiest of holies. It's based upon the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And look what he says there. For once and for all, once and for all, he, he sprinkled you with the blood. For how long? For all time. So that you have an eternal redemption. What's eternal mean in the Greek? Eternal. Forever. That means it's once and for all time. It can never be taken away because it's not based upon anything you've done. It's based upon the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Now listen to me real carefully, and if you believe you can lose your salvation, plug your ears up here for a minute because you're probably going to get mad at me. Actually, I want you to take the, take the cobwebs out of your ears, and I want you to listen real carefully. Listen with your heart. You can't take this verse as true and at the same time, believe you can lose your salvation. See, you could lose your salvation if it depended upon your good works, but it doesn't. The only work you have to do, what did Jesus say? This is the work that you must do. You must believe. Your salvation depends upon the blood of Jesus Christ. And once you've put your trust, in the blood of Jesus Christ, and you've really put your trust in the blood of Jesus Christ, you've been sprinkled with that blood. How many times? You're sprinkled one day, and then, you're, and then the next day when you're bad, you're, you're unsprinkled? No, you're sprinkled what? Once and for all time, so that you don't have a conditional salvation. You have an eternal salvation in Jesus Christ. And, and I'll say this, if you don't like the idea of the blood, if you don't like the idea of a slaughterhouse religion, then th if you think the blood's unnecessary, then you can't be saved. Because there is only one thing that saves you and gets you into the presence of God, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ. Now look at verses 13 and 14. He talks about the blood some more. He says, for the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of the heifers sprinkling, and the ashes of the heifers sprinkling, of, sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of flesh. How, if that, for if the blood of the bulls and goats does that, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through e his eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. How many times did he do that? Once and for all time. How many times did he do it for you? Once and for all times. Cleanse you, your conscience, from the dead works to serve the living God. Now, that's a, that's a big theological, that's why I know this is Paul, because that just looks like Paul. Nobody else could write a whole systematic theology in one verse, and he does that. See, here's what he's saying. The sacrificial system served its purpose while it existed. I mean, it covered the sins, and in order to have a relationship with God, the Jews had to have their sins covered. And that's what the sacrificial system did. But the sacrificing, back to the first part of the verse, the sacrificing of the blood of animals never cleansed the person. I mean, it never cleansed the person of their sins because it never changed their sinful nature. Because it was just the blood of goats and bulls. It couldn't change their sinful nature. All it could do was cover their sin. And no matter how hard they tried to be good, they couldn't be good. Their works were dead because, because they were under law and they had never had their natures changed. They were still sinners. They weren't saints. But what does the blood of Christ do? John tells us in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, it cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That's not all the blood does. 
the life of God, the Spirit of God, the eternal Spirit, he says here in verse number uh, 14, the eternal Spirit is in the blood. And in the blood, you are given the life of God. And you're given the life of God, and so you're changed from a saint, from a sinner to a saint. And now, all of a sudden, the works that you do are really good works. They're, you serve the, you, you, not dead works anymore, but good works to serve the living God. But it's God who changes you so that your works are living works. They're good works. You can't do that. And you certainly don't do that in order to be saved. And then he goes on in verse number 13. He says, and for this reason, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, not the old covenant, by means of death. He had to die. For the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. What's he saying right there? He's saying that he had to die for the sins of the Old Testament saints. They never would have been saved if he didn't die. The blood of bull and goats never would have taken away their sin. All the blood of bull and goats did was delay the penalty. It just delayed it so they could have a relationship with God. But the penalty was not paid until when? Until Jesus died on the cross. And so for this reason, there has to be Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant by the means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. I got news for you. If God calls you to be a Christian, you're going to receive, the, you're going to be sprinkled with blood, and you're going to receive the eternal inheritance and and that's the jews the jews were being the jews had this bloody religion but it was the blood of bulls and goats it wasn't the blood of god so they had to wait they had to wait before they could be saved that's exactly what paul says over in romans chapter 3 go with me over to romans 3 for a minute You're familiar with this passage. Go to Romans 3, and let's pick up in verse number 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When he says all, what does he mean? Jew and Gentile. Even the Jews. The Jews had a sacrificial system, but they all sinned. We all sin. Now, both Jews and justified are, I mean, both Jews and Gentiles are justified the same way. Look at verse 24. Being justified freely. By the grace through the redemption, the price paid by Jesus Christ, whom God set forth as a payment. Payment for our sin by what? By our good works? No, by his blood. It is a slaughterhouse religion we have. I mean, somebody had to be slaughtered, and it had to be the Son of God who was slaughtered. Whom God set forth as a propitiation for his sin through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because, now watch this, because of forbearance, because God knew that Christ was going to die, God had passed over. He had covered the sins that were previously committed by the Jews. He covered them through the sacrificial system, but he never took it away. But now he has to demonstrate this present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So how are Old Testament saints saved? Same way as New Testament saints are saved, by faith in Jesus Christ, by being called by God. That's how you're saved. You're saved when you're called by God. Man, I hope I'm called by God. I hope I've been chosen by God. How do I get chosen by God? Well, you choose God. That's how you get chosen by God. God in his foreknowledge knows each person in this room who's going to choose him and every person in this room who's going to reject him. He knew, he knew it before the foundation of the world. He still gave you your choice. And to make that choice real so that you really are born again, so that you really can come into the holiest of holies, in order to be chosen by God, we have to humble ourselves. You know how you humble yourselves? You humble yourself by looking at a crucified God on a cross. And you humble yourself at the foot of that cross. 
and you realize that there's nothing that can get you in but the blood of Christ. And if you come with anything else to God other than that blood, you're not getting in. You're not going to be born again. You remember in the book of Luke, you go back to Luke chapter 18. You remember in the book of Luke when Jesus told the parable about the, it really wasn't a parable, it was a story about the, the well, he said it's a parable, so it was a parable, about the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. Remember in verse number 9 he says, and he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves. Friends, let me tell you right now, you better be doggone sure that you aren't trusted in yourself for your salvation. That you aren't trusted in yourself for, for the, the, the privilege of entering the presence of God. You're never going to get in. And, and, the most, and, and I think the people who are most in danger of doing this are church people who thinks somehow because I go to church and I give and I serve and I do this, somehow God is pleased with me. God might be glad you're doing that, but that isn't what pleases God. It's the blood of Christ that pleases God. So you, see, the Pharisees, look, they were the most religious people in the world at the time. And he tells this parable, he says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And you talk about the dredge of... Jewish society, they hated tax collectors worse than anybody. Those guys never went to church. They never tithed. They never did anything religious. And Jesus says, hey, be careful here before you judge. Because the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. I love that. He wasn't praying with God because God wasn't listening. Because he wasn't getting there by the blood. He hadn't humbled himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even that tax collector, that scumbag. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. I do all sorts of good things. God, I know that you're pleased with me. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven because he understood what a wretch he was. But beat his breast, saying, Go and be merciful, merciful to me, a sinner. Now, who got justified? I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Friends, before you're ever going to be sprinkled with that blood, you've got to humble yourself and come to God and realize that you've you got nothing to offer him. He's the one who saves you. He's not impressed with your filthy rags that you call good works. He's not impressed with your religion. He's impressed with one thing, and that's the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you humble yourself, you will be chosen. Hey, I want to be chosen, don't you? Well, how do I get chosen? Well, I humble myself and I choose God, and if I do that, I was chosen in him before the foundation of the world. All right, now go with me over to verses 16 and 17. Try to hang with me here. Verses 16 and 17. I think that's where we left off, right? 15. Didn't we do, we did, we just did 15. Yeah, we're in 16, 16 and 17. I will read it again. And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant by the means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Now, he's going to make a real simple analogy here. He says, for where there is a will, a testament. See, the Old Testament is an old will. There were three covenants. There was a covenant, a will made for Abraham. God gave him a will. Was the blood required? Yeah, you remember when that covenant was made, how they cut the covenant by killing the animals? Then there was the old covenant, and there was a will, and there's a new covenant, and that's a will, where God wills. But when you have a will, what has to happen? For you to inherit the will, somebody's got to die. And that's all he's saying, right? He says, if there is a, where there is a will, there must be also, 
There must also of necessity be the death of the testator, the one who makes the will. For a testament is in force after the men are dead since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. There's the, the first covenant, he's talking about the old covenant, but there actually was another covenant, the covenant between Abraham and God, and that was dedicated with blood. And now he's saying the old covenant had to be dedicated with blood. Both the old covenant and the new covenant had to be dedicated with blood. Why? Why? Why did there have to be blood? Why? You ever thought about that? We sing about the blood. We read about the blood. We talk about the blood. Why did there have to be blood? Because God required it that way. That's why there had to be blood. What does sin do? What is sin? What does sin produce? It produces death. Well, when I lie, I don't produce death. Oh, yeah, you do. Your character dies when you lie. And isn't it amazing how many murders begin with lies? Covetousness the same way. I covet, I don't produce death. Yes, you do. You kill your peace, you kill your contentment. You could kill other people because you're coveting things. So, sin produces death. And the only way to overcome death is with what? With life. That's the only way you can overcome death is with life. I think one of the most important verses in the Bible, everybody who's a Christian should have this memorized, and that is this, Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. The life is in the blood. The life is in the blood. I mean, talk to anybody who understands the anatomy of the body, and they will tell you that you can't live without blood. I mean, we all know that. You, you lose your blood, you're going to die. Your body, your body organs filter the blood as it goes through the body. And if you get bad blood, you're going to die. I mean, the life is in the blood. You have to have good blood in order to live. Now, how does that work spiritually? Well, in the body, the blood purifies and cleanses the body. It gives it life. It purifies and cleanses the body. And so, in a spiritual sense, when we're given the blood of Jesus Christ, when you're sprinkled with the blood, you're given the life of God. And it's that life that, that cleanses you and purifies you from dead works to where you can serve the true and living God. So there's life in the blood. God took takes sin very seriously. And so the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And, and so when we sin, we die. And it's the blood that brings back the life. That's the way God has set it up. Now, we don't see that because we can't see it with our human eyes. But spiritually, there is life in that blood. There is life in the blood that God has sprinkled us with. It's a spiritual life. It's the life of God. It's the divine seed. And it flows through our spirits, and it cleanses us, and it purifies us, and it gives us life, and it overcomes sin. Look at this thing going on. He's in verse number 19, it says, For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. Man, you talk about bloody. 
mean, why would he? But I mean, as soon as they get the law, what does he do? He sprinkles the book of law with blood. Kills an animal, and he sprinkles the book of law with blood. Why does he do that? Why does he do that? Because he's dedicated with blood. Because he, you know why? Because he knew they couldn't keep the law. He knew they were going to break the law and they were going to sin. And so he, the blood had to be there from the very beginning. But that's not the only blood there. Look at the next part. It's saying this is the blood of the covenant, the old covenant, which God has commanded you. Then likewise, he sprinkled the blood. He sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. Why would he sprinkle the blood on the tabernacle? Well, the tabernacle was the most holy place on earth. It was the place, the dwelling place of God. And so the Jews were not holy. They were unholy. They were sinners. So even the tabernacle had to be sprinkled in blood so that they could minister in the tabernacle. Even the utensils had to be sprinkled with blood so they could use the utensils. I mean, they were all unholy in God's eyes. I mean, I don't care how many times they went to church. I don't tell how many much they gave to the ministry of the tabernacle. I don't care how good they were to their wives. I don't care how good they, they were to their friends. They were sinners. Even Moses and Joshua were sinners. And all of these things had to be sprinkled with blood. Why blood? Verse 22, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of what? No remission of sin. That's the way God set it up. Because there's life in the blood and sin produces death. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And it's been that way from the very beginning. Do you remember when Adam and Eve sinned? What did they do? As soon as they sinned, they realized they were naked. And what did they do? They went out and they got them some fig leaves. And they tried to cover themselves in fig leaves. And God said, that's not going to work. That's not going to cover you. Your sin produced death on this earth. And now something's got to die for you to be covered. And so what did he cover them with? He covered them with animal skins. Where did he get those animal skins? He had to kill the animals. You remember with, with Cain and Abel. With Cain and Abel, what had to happen? I mean, I mean, Cain brought the sacrifice of, of his own, the work of his own hands from the produce of his crops, and God wouldn't accept that because there was no death involved. It was Abel's sacrifice that he accepted because Abel sacrificed an animal, and he had to kill that animal in order for that sacrifice to be effective. So here were the Jews in the Old Covenant, and they're given the law, and, 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 well, you talk about a slaughterhouse religion. They had a slaughterhouse religion. I mean, it was bloody, and it was messy. Everything was sprinkled in blood. The priests were sprinkled in blood. The altar was sprinkled in blood. The tabernacle was sprinkled in blood. The utensils were sprinkled in blood. The mercy seat was sprinkled in blood. Where'd they get that blood? From thousands and thousands of animals. They killed those animals and drained their blood, and they had bowlfuls of blood, and they sprinkled blood everywhere. But that was only a shadow of the real thing. For sin to be done away with, and for God to be able to give us his righteousness, Jesus Christ had to be slaughtered for us at Calvary. What kind of blood was that? That was God's blood. Infinite, blood with infinite power to cleanse and purify. When he cried out, it is finished. He once and for all, once and for all, well, he had shed his blood, obtained for us an eternal redemption. Friends, you can't add anything to what Christ has done. You know, as modern Americans, 
I think we're pretty shielded from what goes on at slaughterhouses. I mean, we get our meat and cellophane packages and at the grocery store. I think some of us think it grows on trees or something. <laughs> I'm, I'm not want to sound like a PETA guy, but I think it would all do us good to go to a slaughterhouse and just see what happens to those animals that we eat. It, would, it, it might change the way we viewed things. I mean, I'd probably still eat my steak, but I'd think maybe a little bit differently about it. <laughs> kind of like when you killed Rocky, my favorite chicken, and ate him. You know, here was the thing with the Jew. Most of the animals that they killed, they had raised those animals from the time they were little babies. Many of them were household pets. And that helped them to some degree to understand the magnitude of the cost of their sin. I mean, those animals meant something to them. I remember when we were in seminary, Eli came home one day and he had a little fledgling blue jay. And he brought the little blue jay into the house and we put him into a box. And he was the cutest little thing. He would look up at you and, man, Eli loved that little blue jay. And we tried to feed the blue jay, and the blue jay wouldn't eat. And so we, tr- we had little things we were trying to feed him, and he wouldn't eat. So Brenda called the zoo, and the zoo said, you know, they gave us a little formula, but they said the best thing you can do is find that blue jay's nest, put him back in the nest, and his mother will come back and feed him. Well, I- I'd always heard that if you, if you touched the bird and you put it back in the nest, that the mother would smell the blood and the flesh, and she would kill the bird. But... That was our only, the little bird was starving, and so our only option was to put the little bird into the nest. And so we took him and we put him in the nest. We found the nest. Sure enough, it was in the, in the quadrangle there. And we found the nest. And, and while we were putting the bird in the nest, the mother flew up to the top of the tree. And as soon as we left, she flew into the nest, and she just snuggled up on her little bird, and we were just watching all of this. And then she left, and she came back about 30 minutes later, and she fed the little fledgling. And so we were just really excited about that, and we were watching it all transpire. But that little guy wanted to fly really bad. So again, he flew out of the nest. And that night, we didn't want a, we didn't want a cat or a dog getting him, so we brought him back in the house and put him back in the box. And Eli would look at him, you know, instead of watching TV, he was watching the little legend Blue Jay. And, and, uh, and, and the next day, we, we put him back in the nest, and the same process took place. The mother was waiting for us, and we brought him to the nest. And, and, uh, uh, but at the end of the day, he had flown out of the nest again. He could just fly just enough to get out of the nest, and he'd be on the ground, we'd put him back. And this went on for like seven days. Well, one day I came home from, about after seven days, I came home from class about one o'clock that afternoon, and the little, the little bird wasn't in his nest. And so I went to look for him. And I couldn't find him anywhere. I usually be, get up under a bush or something like that, and I couldn't find him anywhere. And, and uh, so I went out to the road, and sure enough, he had gotten run over, and he was just blood and guts. Well, when Eli got home, the first thing he did was go to the, ask me, where, let's go to the nest and see my blue jay, Dad. And I said, son, I hate to tell you this, but your blue jay has died. Get mad at Kleenex, will you? Man, man. <laughs> you know, Eli was crushed over his little blue jay. It's amazing how just seven days of having that little blue jay in your house changed the way you saw him. You know, I had an understanding then about a lot better understanding about Passover. You remember what God did in Passover? He had them take their prized lamb, the one they had raised from a little baby, and they brought him into the house, and they had to keep him there for a week. So, they, so if he wasn't a pet when he came into the house, when they killed that lamb, he was a pet. And they realized that for them to be saved from the death angel, it cost something. It cost dearly. Their little pet was killed. Our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. You know know what's happened to me over the years? I don't know if it's happened to you. 
But the more I get to know him, the more he becomes part of my life. The more I read the Gospels, the more I read Revelation, the more I look at those theophanies, the more I see his love and sense his love in my life, the harder it is to go back and read the story of the cross and realize that it was my sin that put my friend, my father, on that cross. Hey, we've got a slaughterhouse religion. There's no other way to look at it. God slaughtered for us. But thank God he died for us. For there is life in the blood. And there is no remission of sins except by the shedding of blood. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, then we'll do the Lord's Supper. Father, we just thank you for your word. and Lord, we thank you for what you mean to us in our lives. Lord, if we all, all of those of us who have gotten to know you, Lord, who have a relationship with you, Lord, we grieve the fact that you were slaughtered for our sin. For the sins we'll commit, we committed in the past, for the sins we'll commit today, for the sins we'll commit in the future, Lord. Help us to take that sin more seriously. Lord, help us to, we know you're not on the cross, we know you died once and for all, and you sprinkled us with your blood, but, but Lord, help us to live godly lives, the kind of lives you desire us to live, the kind of lives you've made the way for us to live by the power of your blood and the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, I just thank you for, for all you've done for us. I thank you in Christ's name. Amen.
Yes, we do have a slaughterhouse religion. When we take this wine and we eat this bread, we're remembering the slaughter of the Son of God on the cross. And the more I get to know the Lord and the more you get to know the Lord, the more it grieves us that it was us that put him there. But you know, not only does it grieve me, it fills my heart with gratitude and love and joy that God would love me so much that he would allow himself to be slaughtered for my sin so that once and for all he could give me his blood give me his life and redeem me forever you talk about amazing grace that's amazing grace for I received from the Lord that which I delivered unto you that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had broken it he gave thanks and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes. Let's stand and close in a song.